Welcome to the Outrage Science Bites podcast, a companion podcast to the Outrage Overload podcast. This is day 20 of the NAPOD POMO challenge. That's a national podcast post month challenge. That's a 30 day challenge to post 30 episodes in 30 days in the month of November. So this Outrage Science Bites episode may be a little long for a bite. We'll see how it goes. Um, I have been working on a a long format episode for this topic for like six months. It's been quite a while, and I'm not even sure where that will end up. So, well, but I wanted to summarize. I thought this was an opportunity to summarize some of those thoughts I was having about what what the origins origins of that episode were, and you know what what I've learned so far. So. In an episode we did on the Outrage Overload podcast, I talked to a pre-med student, or I'm sorry, a medical student that, you know, was critical of various things, aspects of lockdowns and other things. And we talked about one thing we, we really agreed on was this idea that it would be nice to do an honest post-mortem on COVID. And sort of my version of this is sort of where is the you know, equivalent of the 9-11 report. We never did that with COVID. And I sort of get it. We all kind of want to just set it aside and look the other way. But by never having done that at a formal level, we sort of are leaving a lot of those wounds out there festering. So this group, there's a book that uh, was published. And this group of 37, uh, I'm sorry, 34 experts uh, from a variety of backgrounds Um, put out a book called The Lessons from the COVID War, an investigative report, which is sort of the closest thing to a 9-11 type report on COVID-19 that's not an official government report. Um, But it was put together, like I said, from a team of 34 experts. And they did interview many, many people. They didn't have subpoena power, but they did interview a lot of people. And it's a pretty comprehensive and insightful analysis of the U.S. response to the COVID-19 pandemic. And it's a long book. It has a lot of things in it. What I will do is give you a few of the bullet points, um, some of the key takeaways. It's The book asserts that the COVID-19 pandemic was a complex and unprecedented challenge, and the United States response was often inadequate. The lack of clear and coordinated leadership at the federal level hampered the response and the politicization of the pandemic made it difficult to implement effective measures. The United States public health infrastructure was not well equipped to handle a pandemic of this magnitude and the country's healthcare system was overwhelmed. The pandemic exacerbated existing social and economic inequalities and it disproportionately affected marginalized communities. I would say those are four of the main takeaways. And then here's a few of the recommendations for future preparedness. Strengthening the public health infrastructure, investing in research and development, improving communication and coordination between different levels of government, promoting public trust in science and healthcare, and addressing the social and economic determinants of health. Now, I will say that not a lot has been done in any of those areas. I don't think we're any better prepared for the next pandemic. Now, as I said, I've actually been working on a long-form podcast episode about this book and this topic for for quite some time. 
And the origins of that, well, how, how I started on that path was my goal was there, A, just to sort of make note that this sort of investigative report had occurred, and also to work on dispelling some myths and misperceptions about the pandemic in, and, and about the resp- our response to the pandemic in the name of, of um, sort of lowering the, the temperature. I, I will say that a lot of people might not like some of what they're going to hear, particularly if they're still holding on to some of those political, politicized views around the pandemic and the, and the response. And, you know, and I, and I say that's going to apply no matter which side you're on. And that was, again, my initial point was to try to dispel and soften some of those misperceptions and some of those myths out there. And, you know, and one of those uh, to, to start on was, is, is you know, we, we've all kind of looked for scapegoats about the pandemic and it pretty quickly, you know, if you could find a scapegoat that happened to be uh, somebody on the, your political opposite, you know, a political rival, so much the better, right? So much easier to, you know, make that person the scapegoat or that that area the scapegoat or that uh, party the scapegoat or whatever. And so we, you know, that was, that was happening on, on all sides. And so while the report acknowledges that politics played a significant role in shaping the response to the pandemic, you know, particularly in the U S you know, it also emphasizes that politics was not the only factor that contributed to the pandemic's uh, devastating impact. And here's a few ways that other critical factors played a role. So structural deficiencies, the United States public health infrastructure was not adequately prepared to handle a pandemic of this scale. And that's due to years of underfunding and neglect that left the system understaffed, under-resourced, and lacking in essential capabilities. There was inadequate leadership, lack of clear and coordinated leadership at the federal level, hampered the response. The Trump administration's inconsistent messaging, politicization of public health measures, and disregard for scientific evidence undermined public trust and hindered effective implementation of mitigation strategies. And that sounds like a partisan charge, so we'll come back to that a little bit, that it's not all Trump's fault. Social and economic inequalities, the pandemic exacerbated existing social economic inequalities, disproportionately affecting marginalized communities, Socioeconomic factors such as poverty, lack of access to health care, and underlying health conditions made certain populations more vulnerable to the virus and its consequences. And finally, public misinformation and mistrust. The spread of misinformation and the erosion of public trust in science and healthcare institutions further hindered effective pandemic management. This made it challenging to implement public health measures and fueled vaccine hesitancy, exacerbating the spread of the virus. So the report concludes that politics were a significant but not the sole factor responsible for the failures of the pandemic response, and it emphasizes the need to address the underlying structural deficiencies in the public health system, foster strong and consistent leadership, promote equity, and address social determinants of health, and combat misinformation and rebuild trust in science and healthcare. So they're super easy list of things to get done, right? And you know, and the idea is that the report suggests that assigning blame solely to politics overlooks the complex interplay of factors that contributed to the pandemic's devastating impact. So another one, one of the mis- misperceptions and myths that I wanted to kind of address a little bit in this is that there was 
the media played up especially um, the idea that there was a big difference in policies adopted by red versus blue states. And what we really find is the difference between the states was was less than the rhetoric would suggest, and it was exas- and it was exaggerated in in the media. So while there were indeed variations in in policy approaches between certain states, these differences were often more muted than the rhetoric surrounding them suggested. And the report emphasizes that the impact of these policy variations was often less significant than the overarching influence of national-level factors, such as the federal government's response, public health infrastructure, and socioeconomic conditions. The report also highlights that many states, regardless of their political affiliations, faced similar challenges and adopted similar strategies to address the pandemic. For instance, many states, both red and blue, implemented stay-at-home orders, mask mandates, and testing and contact tracing. So the report concludes that while there were some notable differences in policy approaches between states, these differences were often exaggerated in political discourse. So that's one myth I wanted to sort of dispel and get some clarity on. You know, the report emphasizes the need to move beyond these these simplistic political divides and focus on evidence-based approaches to pandemic preparedness and response. It highlights the importance of collaboration, data sharing, and a shared commitment to public health across all level of government, which has not really happened, by the way. Nothing's really changed about that. So another area that was kind of a exacerbated the political divide over this was there was kind of this thing started getting framed as sort of a Fauci versus Trump thing, where if you're on one side, Fauci's the evil one, and if you're on the other, then Trump is the evil one. When it, when in reality, neither was really perfect. And this report does discuss that and and talks about and and it, it's critical of Trump at times. It's critical of. Uh, Fauci and the CDC at times. It's critical of the Biden administration at times. So it doesn't really give anybody a break and it doesn't really blame any of those players um, or any specific players um, for for the, the as a major factor, as the biggest factor, certainly, in the deficiencies in the response. So, you know, with Fauci... Um, you know, obviously his strength was his expertise in infectious diseases and his commitment to science and evidence-based policy. And those were valuable assets during the pandemic. And another myth about that that I'd like to spell out before we move on from that is, you know, a lot of us, certainly the medium sort of made it look like Dr. Anthony Fauci was sort of in charge of this whole thing. But in fact, he had no operational role. His role during the pandemic was primarily as a scientific advisor and public health communicator. He did not have direct operational control over the implementation of public health measures or the allocation of resources. His primary responsibility was to provide expert guidance to policymakers and to inform the public about the evolving understanding of the virus and the best practices for preventing its spread. So, you know, in terms of, I, I mentioned some of those, you know, the, the, um, positives that it had about Fauci as his expertise in infectious diseases and so on, and his long history in that regard, you know, they were they were still critical of him. They were not afraid to be critical. So some of those areas where they were critical of Fauci, and we should all be critical, is his initial downplaying of aerosol transmission. In the early stages of the pandemic, Fauci and other public health officials initially downplayed the significance of aerosol transmission, even though it was fairly well understood within the inner circles of 
these diseases and and it's, and it took him a while to buy into that and his stance was later revised as the evidence mounted and airborne transmission was a significant factor they're also critical because he delayed guidance on masking. The Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, the CDC, under Fauci's leadership, initially discouraged widespread mask wearing among the general public. This guidance was subsequently reversed as the understanding of the aerosol transmission evolved. Some critic, critics argue that earlier masking recommendations could have slowed the spread of the virus. There was mixed messaging on masking in public settings. Even after acknowledging the importance of masking, Fauci's messaging on masking in public settings was sometimes ambiguous or inconsistent. This led to confusion among the public and may have contributed to inconsistent mask usage. There was a lack of clear communication on masks and respirators. Fauci could have provided more clear and consistent guidance on the relative effectiveness of different types of masks, such as, such as surgical masks, KN95s and N95s. This would have helped the public make informed decisions about mass choices and reduce confusion. Finally, failure to adequately address misinformation and masking. Fauci and the CDC could have done more to combat misinformation and disinformation surrounding masks, particularly in the early stages of the pandemic. This could have helped maintain public trust in mask wearing and, and recommendations. So, you know, they're not, you know, he, they're not taking the Fauci is 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 the answer side, you know, and the Fauci, they're not taking a stance in the Fauci versus Trump debate that a lot of people wanted to frame this whole pandemic as. Now, in terms of President Trump, you know, his strengths uh, there, and they give him credit for this, was his decisive action in initiating Operation Warp Speed, the effort to develop vaccines quickly, is and it's widely credited with accelerating vaccine development. He also implemented some effective policies, such as travel restrictions from high-risk areas. Now, what were some of Trump's weaknesses? They were not afraid to mention this either. So Trump's inconsistent messaging, politicization of public health measures, and disregard for scientific evidence undermined the public trust and hampered effective implementation of mitigation strategies. His downplaying of the severity of the virus and his promotion of unproven treatments contributed to confusion and misinformation. So this... Fauci versus Trump narrative was an oversimplified portrayal of a very complex situation. Both individuals played significant roles in the pandemic response, with their actions having both positive and negative consequences. And the report emphasizes the need to move beyond these simplistic polarizations and focus on more nuanced understanding of the factors that shaped the pandemic or the impact of the pandemic. So let's see, what's another myth I wanted to clear up? So, and I, and I also want to say that the report was also critical of the Biden administration as well. So they give Biden, the Biden administration credit, but they're also critical too. Just for example, uh, there was a slow start on vaccine boosters. So the Biden administration was criticized for its initial hesitation in recommending COVID-19 vaccine boosters, despite evidence suggesting that waning immunity could reduce vaccine effectiveness. The delay in recommending boosters may have contributed to a surge in cases during the winter of 2021-2022. Inadequate support for testing and contact tracing. The Biden administration was criticized for not providing adequate funding and support for testing and contact tracing infrastructure, which were crucial for identifying and isolating cases early on. This lack of support hindered the effectiveness of these mitigation measures. Overemphasis on school openings. The Biden administration's strong emphasis on keeping schools open while well-intentioned may have overlooked the risks to students, teachers, and the wider community. Clearer guidelines and more support for schools could have helped balance the educational needs with the public health considerations.
ineffective messaging on mass guidance. The Biden administration's messaging on mass guidance was sometimes inconsistent and unclear, particularly during periods of fluctuating case rates. This inconsistency may have contributed to public confusion and noncompliance with mask recommendations. And finally, failure to adequately prepare for long-term impact. The Biden administration was criticized for not adequately preparing for the long-term impact of COVID-19, particularly on healthcare systems, the economy, and mental health. A more comprehensive long-term plan could have helped mitigate these ongoing challenges. So, you know, I just wanted to sort of clear up some of those misperceptions where I think the biggest one is just this idea that the whole, the, all the pandemic could have been improved if we just listened to Fauci or everything would have been improved if we just listened to Trump or, you know, somehow Trump was terrible and Biden was great or vice versa. And all of those are an oversimplification. And I think they let the sort of real challenges off the hook. So making this political, you know, maybe makes us feel good that it was the other side's fault. But, you know, the reality is there's there's blame and credit to be had on all sides regarding whether, you know, on the, the, the Trump administration, the Biden administration, as well as others in, you know, the CDC and others. So it's not a simple case of red was always wrong, blue was always right, or vice versa. So um, those are big, big factors. And, and I will say this is probably one of the areas where I'll get some take some heat because I, you know, I, w- I do want to talk about, you know, vaccines a little bit here, right? So, you know, there was another myth that is out there that somehow the, the COVID vaccines, you know, weren't tested enough or weren't good enough. And, you know, they were only effective for a certain percent or whatever. And and the, the misperception there is, or the, you know, the, what was not communicated clear, and there was a lot of problems with how vaccines were communicated, vaccine effectiveness wasn't communicated. But, you know, so, you know, we, we can sort of look at three or four factors when you're looking at a vaccine, right? There's effectiveness against severe illness, hospitalization, and death. There's effectiveness against infection. There's duration of protection, and there's sort of a safety profile. And, you know, this was not communicated well at all with the COVID vaccines, you know, from from day one. I think we were promised a very high um, effectiveness against infection in the beginning, and it was so in the beginning, but that waned as the virus uh, morphed, right? So so it might have been 90% or more in the beginning, but it went down. And, you know, and you, you should, but we should also be advised that that's still really good for a vaccine. If a vaccine is over 50% effective against reducing infection, that's a good vaccine, and we often support that. And, and you know, many vaccines are 70% or higher, but a vaccine will be approved if it's much lower than that. So the fact that initially the the, the COVID vac- vaccines passed, you know, reached like a 90% effectiveness against infection, you know, that was really high. Like that is not that common. So that's a very good vaccine and that would be accepted in many cases. And now when you come to effectiveness against severe illness and hospitalization and death, that's it's even higher. That has stayed 95% or perhaps even higher, which is higher than many other um, vaccines. But it does vary depending on the disease but you know they're tip- it's tip- other vaccines are also high maybe 70 and 90 percent but the fact that the COVID-19 vaccines could keep you out of the hospital and prevent deaths you know at the 95 percent rate is you know quite quite good that's a very good vaccine and in some sense maybe we were lucky that it came in that those back early vaccines came in with those high of numbers or we would have had even more hesitancy for those vaccines but you know, and the fact that we question those vaccines with those high of numbers is sort of, you know, 
like kind of ridiculous. That's an extremely high effectiveness rate. And then the duration of protection, again, this fits in line with, with other um, vaccines, but it you know, varies, of course, depending on disease. Obviously, some vaccines have, are, are of a lifelong range, right? They can last many years in some cases. In some cases, they last forever. So, And with the, with the COVID-19s, you know, we've discovered now that we need to have extended, that they, the, the duration of protection, you know, has to be extended with these booster doses. And finally, the safe, safety profile was extremely high with this, with this vaccine, with these vaccines compared to many other vaccines that are widely used and widely accepted, um, you know, and all vaccines that are approved are generally safe. And they have, but, but some have some very serious side effects that are rare, but they do happen. Um, and this, these vaccines actually have an extremely low rare of, of serious side effects and almost non-existent. And, you know, generally the side effects, you know, are simple, you know, soreness, redness, fatigue, and maybe you're, you're, you feel a little bit down for a few days. Um, so, you know, I, I think we have to put that in perspective that these vaccines were, um, you know, in comparison to other vaccines that, that for other diseases and that we, we use all the time, these vaccines were highly effective and, and ranked very, very well. So again, anybody that, that's vaccine hesitant might not like any of that data, but, but, but that's sort of the reality. And we were very, we were sort of critical of these vaccines. And I think a lot of that had to do with really bad, terrible messaging about it. I think if, if people would have been more honest and we understood what the vaccine was good at and not so good at and how it would work over time. And we didn't know everything right in the beginning, but they knew quite a lot and they could have done a much better job to explain this. And again, compare it to other vaccines that we use all the time. You know, your, your flu shot might only be 50 or 60% effective. And we use that every year. We approve those flu shots because 50 to 60% is still a really good effective rate. So, so I guess that's where I'll finish this episode. It's already way long for an outrage science bite, but I wanted to get some of this out there and really let us kind of lower the temperature about, about the COVID-19 pandemic response and, and a lot of the politicization of it and be honest with ourselves. So when we politicize this thing, we mask a lot of those real problems that this book outlines and others have outlined. And we need to focus on that and realize we haven't really done much to improve any of those things. You know, we haven't strengthened the public health infrastructure. We haven't, we aren't investing in research and development. We just want to look behind it and pretend like we don't have to do anything. We haven't improved those, that communication and coordination between different levels of government. That was a huge problem for the pandemic response. We haven't improved, we've done, you know, we haven't done anything to improve public trust in science and healthcare and putting it, you know, just hiding it, you know, throwing it under the rug and moving forward isn't going to do anything to improve that. And finally, of course, we haven't done anything to address or haven't done very much. We've done some with obviously there's been some bills passed and other things to address some of the social and economic determination determinants of health. But, you know, that's a that's a, obviously a very long, big and long term problem. But we haven't really done a lot specifically to deal with that. But but, you know, so by by pretending like our, our you know, falling into our divisiveness and our tendency to polarize and politicize everything, we're, we're sort of letting off letting the real problems off the hook and we're not putting any any energy into dealing with those so that's where i'll leave this episode i i hope that you found this episode educational and maybe a little bit entertaining and if you like this kind of these this kind of content you may appreciate the long form outrage overload podcast at outrageoverload.net 
And uh, you can find all the episodes of, of the Outrage Overload podcast there. You can also find all the past episodes of this Outrage Science Bites um, podcast and all those episodes. So check that out at outrageoverload.net. And thanks for listening and look for another new episode tomorrow. <laughs>